This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going, with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Quidon by Lafcadio Hearn because, spoilers, the episode is about him, and also it's a pretty famous and good book about Japanese mythology and various stories taken from that mythology. So if you've got an interest in that, it's worth your time. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. to the History of Japan podcast, episode 298, The Ghost of Japan Past. Today's topic is the story of a man who lived, by pretty much any measure, a fascinating life. It's one I've been meaning to get to for a while now, but while I was away in New Orleans, I saw some things that really spurred me to get on it. So today we're going to talk about one of the first people to do, well, what I enjoy doing so much trying to help people who have no cultural connection to Japan understand it a little better. His name was Lafcadio Hearn, and his story starts in the most obvious place for a story about a great scholar of Japan to start, the outlying islands of Greece. Wait, what? Well, Lafcadio Hearn was born on the Greek island of Lefkada, one of the Ionian islands between Italy and Greece proper, in 1850. His mother, Rosa Casimatis, was a Greek woman. His father, Charles Bush Hearn, was an Anglo-Irish member of the British Army, a surgeon, who was stationed on the islands which weirdly were under British control. Turns out, in the whole topsy-turvy world of post-French Revolution War, those islands had been conquered by France under Napoleon, then taken by the Ottomans and the Russians, and then handed over to the British at the conclusion of the whole damn thing who then proceeded to keep the islands until 1864, even though the natives were Greek and wanted to be part of the newly independent Greek kingdom that had declared itself in 1822, but the British didn't hand them over until much later and really only did it as a favor to the new king of Greece, who was actually Danish, so they figured giving him the islands would make him look good. It was a whole thing. Anyway, that's what some random British army officer is doing out here if you're wondering, which I'm sure you were, but don't get too attached to this relationship. Though Lafcadio Hearn's parents had married after the birth of their first child, Lafcadio's elder brother George, who died shortly after Lafcadio was born, their union would not last long. Late in 1850, Charles Hearn was promoted and reassigned to the Caribbean. His family did not approve of him marrying some random Greek lady, and so they convinced him not to tell Army Command about his wife, and instead to just ditch her in Greece. He would, out of some sense of decency, arrange for his wife and a child to relocate to his hometown of Dublin, Ireland, but this was far from an improvement. As mentioned, the family did not approve of Rosa Casimatis, with the exception of young Lafcadio's aunt, Sarah Brenane. In part, this was because Rosa Casimatis was a Greek Catholic, 
The Hearns, being a prominent Irish family, had converted to Anglican Christianity. Though most Irish were and still are Catholic, the upper crust under British rule was largely Anglican. The only Catholic member of the family was dear Aunt Sarah. Eventually, Charles Hearn and Rosa Casimatis would get their marriage annulled and go on to remarry. In the process, leaving behind the child they'd had together, young Lafcadio Hearn, who would become the ward of his Aunt Sarah. After the age of seven, Lafcadio Hearn would never see his biological parents again. Instead, he spent time with his aunt, working through her pretty extensive personal library of history and mythology. By all accounts, the young boy was a voracious reader and devoured everything he could. For a time, his aunt Sarah tried to push him in the direction of Catholic education, sending him to a series of Catholic schools in both the UK and France, with the help of another distant relative, Henry Hearn Molyneux. However, A. Lafcadio, by all accounts, really did not like Catholic school, and B. Henry Molyneux and Sarah Bernane would run into some fiscal troubles in the 1860s, making it nearly impossible for them to pay the boys' tuition. In the end, Hearn had to leave the schools. The most he got out of them was a serious injury to his right eye during a game, which would leave him largely blind on that side of his face. For a time, the two left Lafcadio with a relative in London, where young Lafcadio Hearn busied himself with visits to the various libraries of the city as well as the British Museum. However, eventually Henry Hearn Molyneux decided to get rid of this pesky little drain on his finances. In 1869, when Hearn was 19, Molyneux bought the kid a one-way ticket to the American city of Cincinnati, where Molyneux's sister was living with her husband. He promised they would take care of him. Instead, when Hearn got to Cincinnati, the family said, Sorry, we can't take you in, no money for it. They gave him a total of five bucks and their good wishes, and then told him to get lost. Incidentally, this would not be the last time Henry Molyneux would screw over Lafcadio Hearn. When Sarah Bernane eventually died, she left a substantial bequest to Lafcadio, but Molyneux was the executor of the estate and kept every cent for himself. Lafcadio Hearn would work a series of menial jobs to pay his bills at first, but was lucky enough to make friends with another immigrant, an Englishman named Henry Watkin, who worked in the printing business. Watkin would eventually employ Hearn at his print shop, and from there, Hearn was able to make the first of a series of decisive steps in his life. He got a job in 1872 as a newspaper writer. Specifically, his first writing gig was at the Cincinnati Daily Inquirer, where he wrote popular articles for a growing field of literary entertainment, a field very near and dear to my own heart, true crime, criminalrecordspodcast.com. He was a very good writer by all accounts, and like everything else he'd write, his work remains pretty readable, which is not something you say about a lot of things from the 19th century. However, Hearn was not great at playing the politics of Cincinnati. In 1874, he got into a big row with both his paper and the wider community. Hearn, you see, caused a bit of a scandal by marrying a black woman named Alethea Foley not only scandalizing the racist sensibilities of the city, but breaking Ohio's own state law against racial miscegenation, a fancy way of saying marriage between people of two different races. 
It's unclear how Hearn and Foley met, but we do know that Hearn was one of the few writers of the time who spent any of his time and energy profiling the lives of black communities in the city. Hearn had made plenty of other enemies in his time at Cincinnati. He'd satirized both local politicians and the local church leadership to start, but his marriage was the final straw. The Inquirer fired him, and though they offered him his job back once the Fuhrer died down, an incensed Hearn would tell them to shove it. He would eventually leave Cincinnati in 1877, and if you're wondering, in the process, he left his relationship with Alethea Foley as well, though the two ended things on good terms by all accounts. Instead, Hearn made his way down the river, and by down I mean all the way down, to the great city of New Orleans. With the help of his friend Henry Watkin, he was able to get a gig as a dispatch writer for another Cincinnati paper, the Cincinnati Commercial, working in New Orleans. Cincinnati is connected to the Mississippi River by way of one of its tributaries, the Ohio River, and New Orleans was and is the major port on the mouth of the Mississippi, so the two cities did have a strong commercial connection. Hearn would spend 10 years in New Orleans as a writer contracted to a variety of newspapers and magazines, some local, some national, as well as making a couple of forays into translation work mostly from French to English. However, what makes his time in New Orleans worth remembering is the fact that he is credited with often inventing New Orleans in the popular consciousness. Now, what does that mean exactly? Surely people were aware of New Orleans before he got there. How could he invent it? Well, yes, people had heard of New Orleans, but ask yourself for a second, when you think of New Orleans, especially old New Orleans, what pops into your mind? Do you think of a beautiful but decaying city surrounded by swamps full of life? A town that shelters away during the day only to come alive in the evening? Well, that image is an image Hlafgadio Hearn helped pioneer with his writing. Indeed, his contribution to it is such that a recent work compiling his writings on New Orleans was entitled Inventing New Orleans. Hearn lavished all of these fanciful descriptions on the city, talking at great lengths about things like humidity seeping in everywhere, describing the city nightlife as, quote, a blaze of gas and a whirl of pleasure, unquote. It's all rich imagery, and later writers who would help popularize that image, for example, the interminably boring, I mean fascinating William Faulkner, would build heavily on that work. For me, the most fascinating part of this moment in Hearn's life is his relationship with the city's black and Creole populations, Creole peoples being the ones who had roots in the French and Spanish colonial eras. His accounts of these people shine with sympathy. His writings about the Creole population tend to focus on how much better adapted the Creoles are to living in a place like New Orleans. For example, Hearn mocks Americans for their insistence at working outside in the heat during the worst times of day, simply just to prove that they can, while the Creoles retreat indoors until things are more tolerable. Hearn also wrote extremely sympathetically about the black population of the city, most famously in his obituary for one of the city's most famous voodoo queens, a practitioner of the New Orleans style of voodoo, named Marie Laveau. Now, if you're at all interested in voodoo, Laveau is quite a famous practitioner and still has a pretty major voodoo following to this day. 
Portrayals of her tend to be sensationalistic in all the ways you typically associate with descriptions of voodoo. Hearn, though, wrote her obituary very matter-of-factly with lines like this, quote, Marie was certainly a very wonderful woman with a kind old heart. Whatever superstitious stories were whispered about her, it is at least certain that she enjoyed the respect and affections of thousands who knew her, a number of whom she befriended in times of dire distress, of sick folks snatched from the shadows of death and nursed by her to health and strength again with that old Creole skill and knowledge of natural medicine, which is now almost a lost art." Unquote. In essence, Hearn's career in New Orleans helped pioneer his literary voice, for lack of a better term. His writing style, defined by drawing metaphors between stories his readers were likely familiar with and the ones he was trying to tell, as well as a genuine sympathy and interest for cultures not his own. All of this was pioneered in New Orleans. But New Orleans would not make him famous. Even now, his stint in the city is not particularly well known. Instead, what makes him famous was a career opportunity that came his way in 1890 after he'd left New Orleans to spend two years as a correspondent in the Caribbean. Lafcadio Hearn managed to get a job as a newspaper correspondent in Japan. Hearn arrived in Japan in 1890 and would spend the remainder of his life there, but funnily enough, he would actually not do it as a newspaperman. That gig, for reasons that are unclear, ended within a few months of Hearn's arrival. But Hearn, once again showing a talent for making good friends at fortuitous times in life, managed to become acquainted in the interim with one of Japan's most prominent foreigners, Basil Hall Chamberlain. Chamberlain is really one of those guys in the fields of Japan studies and Japanese history, one of the first Westerners to really pioneer the study of Japan in a Western academic context, and to do the work of trying to make Japan accessible to Westerners. He was, among many things, the first person to translate the famous mytho-history known as the Kojiki into English, one of the first to do serious research in English on the Hokkaido Aboriginal peoples known as the Ainu, and one of the first to try and put together translations of haiku as a poetic form. At the time Hearn arrived in Japan, Basil Hall Chamberlain was a senior professor of Japanese at Tokyo Imperial University. Chamberlain had extensive contacts in the Japanese government and used them to help this young man he'd taken a shine to. He arranged for Hearn to get a job teaching in Japan to tide him over. This was not exactly a plum gig. Hearn would be teaching in Matsue, the capital of Shimane Prefecture in western Honshu. Now, if you are not familiar with Shimane Prefecture, well, there's a reason for that. It is the second most sparsely populated prefecture in Japan, losing out only to neighboring Totori Prefecture. This is, by pretty much any measure, Japan's backcountry. But that suited Hearn just fine. His initial teaching contract was only for the summer of 1890, but he would end up remaining in Matsue for a year and a half. Teaching in general seemed to agree with him. He would split his career between his writings and teachings, though not always in what we would call a K-12 setting, for the remainder of his life. Now, his willingness to stay in Matsue seems in part to have come from a genuine affection for the city, 
but it also seems to have come from the fact that he found romance for the second time in his life while he was there. Specifically, he met a young woman by the name of Koizumi Setsu during his time in Matsue. The two were introduced by an intermediary, Nishida Sentaro, the principal of the middle school where Hearn was teaching, who, like so many before him, seems to have found this odd Greek Irishman strangely charming. Nishida took young Hearn under his wing and helped him find his footing in Matsue, and eventually introduced Hearn to his future wife. Koizumi Setsu was much younger than Lafcadio Hearn, 18 years younger, making her 22 to Hearn's 40 when he moved to Matsue. But like him, she was also divorced. Her first marriage to an unknown man had ended in failure. She was also from a family that had fallen on hard times. The Koizumis had been low-ranking samurai in service to the former lord of Matsue Domain, a Tokugawa clan relative named Matsudaira Sadayasu. Like many low-ranking samurai, the Koizumi family had not weathered the transition to actually, you know, having to work for a living particularly well. They had fallen into pretty severe poverty, kept afloat only by the generosity of friends like the Nishidas. That's why, when the family received discreet inquiries as to whether their daughter would be prepared to marry a strange westerner, they accepted. Perhaps in older days, the family would have been pickier about who their daughter ended up with, but those days were gone. They were not really in a position to be so picky anymore. By all accounts, the marriage did eventually become a happy one. It was not exactly love at first sight, but Koizumi Setsu eventually came to appreciate her husband, who was, apparently, a pretty sweet guy. In a later reminiscence she told of their first home together, she described living with him and a maid and nobody else. One night, Setsu was out taking a stroll when she saw her husband. He'd found a hungry cat and was nursing it back to health on his own, and eventually took it into the house. She found the fact that he took the time to help this stray animal incredibly endearing and charming. Which, yeah, it is. Koizumi Setsu would provide her husband with companionship and family for the rest of his life. She also provided him with something a bit more concrete. In 1896, Hearn would take the fateful step of naturalizing as a Japanese citizen through marriage to his wife. Without a marriage to a Japanese citizen, this would have been hard, pretty much impossible to do. He even took his wife's Japanese name, taking the name Koizumi Yakumo for himself. The couple would remain in Matsue for a year and a half before relocating to Kumamoto in Kyushu, which Hearn hated, calling it, quote, my realization of a prism in the bottom of hell, unquote, before moving to Kobe, one of the major ports of the Inland Sea. There, he got a job working at an English-language newspaper, but before long, he decided he didn't much care for it and moved on to teaching. His old friend Chamberlain set him up with a gig as a lecturer at Tokyo Imperial University, teaching English literature. He would teach there or at nearby Waseda University until his death. Now, we've charted Hearn's career pretty much every which way now, and it really is an interesting one, but his career as a journalist isn't really what he's known for. You see, Hearn, while he was in Japan, wrote. He wrote a lot, actually, by my count completing 15 books during his stint in the country. 
What did he write on, you ask? Well, the answer you'd usually get is Japan, but what does that actually mean? Hearn was deeply fascinated by what he viewed as Old Japan. He loved to learn anything he could about the legends and historical tales of the Japanese past, and was fascinated by his vision of a true Japan as distinct from Western influence. Roger Pulvers wrote a great piece on Hearn's legacy for the Japan Times, where he referred to Hearn as, quote, the shadow maker, the illusionist who conjured up his own visions of Japan and gladly lost himself in them, unquote, and I think that is just fantastic phrasing. Now, Isaac, you might be wondering, is this some kind of fancy way of saying that Hearn was full of crap and just making a bunch of stuff up about Japan? The answer to that question is complicated. Certainly, Hearn saw what he wanted to see in Japan. This is where you can draw some really interesting parallels between Lafcadio Hearn in Japan and Lafcadio Hearn in New Orleans. In both cases, Hearn focuses on the remnants of this romanticized past, not invented from nothing, to be sure, but also clearly fading away and thus possible to embellish a little bit. Hearn loved this idea of a more authentic past, rich and romantic and aesthetic, compared to the drab sameness of modern industrial life. That is the thread that links his career together. That and a real sympathy, unusual in an educated man of his time, for the non-white peoples of the world. Pulvers, in his write-up of Hearn, said, quote, There is not a drop of racist blood in Hearn's body, unquote, which by any common definition is true. He was occasionally guilty of exoticizing cultures that were not his own, Creole, Japanese, what have you, but he came at those cultures with a unique sympathy and without the assumption, naturally made at the time, that Western culture was just inherently better. But what did he actually write, you ask? Well, the most famous work by Hearn is Kaidon, Stories and Studies of Strange Things, often romanized as Kaidon because of some changes in Japanese orthography over the centuries that I would be happy to talk about if someone, say, expressed an interest in hearing about them for the 300th episode. Now, rather than the metaphoric romantic ghosts of times gone by, this is a collection of tales about the Actual Ghosts of Times Gone By, a collection of famous Japanese folktales of spirits and oni and all that good stuff. Kaidan is interesting for a couple of different reasons. First and foremost, it is a great primer on some of the more famous chunks of folklore from Japan. Second, and to my mind more interesting, is the fact that Hearn really understood the audience he was writing this for. The world of Japanese folklore is... Complicated, to say the least. Those of you who listened to the episodes on Oni a few months back certainly remember that. It's very hard to grasp without some cultural context. Hearn was very good at providing that context directly and, where possible, making use of his substantial Western education to draw parallels and connections between stories he knew his readers would be familiar with, Greek and Roman myth, for example, and the Japanese stories he was trying to tell. That ability to draw analogies is a big part of what made Hearn so successful as an interpreter of Japanese culture. He was very good at taking something his readers were unfamiliar with and connecting it to something that they were. 
Hearn's strongest writing, I think, involves short vignettes. He had a real talent for producing these chapter-length narratives with a really clear and powerful tone to them. Kaidan is one example. I'm also partial to another work of his, Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan, which is essentially a collection of anecdotes and observations from his time living in the country. The work includes everything from his experience talking Buddhism with a local monk, which, by the way, Hearn would abandon Christianity during his time in Japan, if not before, and gradually come to identify far more with Buddhism as a religion, as well as his musings on the difference between ideographic characters and letters, and his frustrations trying to communicate with rickshaw drivers. Hearn would continue to write, producing one of these books pretty much every single year for the remainder of his life, while also staying busy teaching. However, the remainder of his life would not be a particularly long time. He would die very suddenly in September 1904 of heart failure at the age of 54. His funeral was held at what is now Jishoin Enyuji in Shinjuku Ward in Tokyo. Hearn had enjoyed wandering the temple's substantial graveyard and ended up being buried there. His ceremony was entirely in Japanese and done by six Buddhist priests, an absolute scandal for the foreign community, first that Hearn's service was being done by heathen priests, and second that it was being done in a heathen temple. As a result of that scandal, a grand total of three foreigners showed up. However, about 100 Japanese nationals, mostly former colleagues and students at Waseda and Tokyo Imperial Universities, attended. Hearn's legacy after his death is a fascinating one. Western newspapers carrying word of his death tended to laud him as the foremost Japan observer of his time. For example, his obituary in the New York Times read, quote, To a greater extent probably than any other Occidental, Lafcadio Hearn succeeded in bridging the gulf which separates East and West. If ever a Westerner understood the Japanese, it was he. The Oregon Journal, meanwhile, described him as the, quote, poet of Japan. He had become Japanese through and through, tried to hide himself from foreigners, and bind himself closer and closer to his chosen country, unquote. One of Hearn's friends, the sculptor Noguchi Yone, father of the famous Japanese-American artist Isamu Noguchi, wrote a public letter describing Hearn's funeral, ending with the phrase, quote, Truly he, Hearn, was a delicate, easily broken Japanese vase, old as the world, beautiful as cherry blossoms. Alas, that wonderful vase has been broken. He is no more with us. Surely we could lose two or three battleships at Port Arthur rather than Lafcadio Hearn, unquote. Don't worry, we'll unpack that whole Port Arthur thing in a second. For now, I want to unpack the fact that many of these articles call him Japanese, and this was, in the technical sense, true. Hearn had nationalized as a Japanese citizen, embraced Japanese religious practices, and generally tried to be as Japanese as he could be while still looking like a white guy. But Hearn's vision of Japan was also sort of his own. As we've talked about, his view of a more authentic past being overshadowed by a more homogenous modernity was something unique to his own way of perceiving the world. It was as much a part of his perception of New Orleans as it was of Japan. The refined, delicate, aesthetic past Hearn imagined for Japan 
was certainly rooted in aspects of Japanese history and culture. That refined aesthetic sense is something you hear a lot about in discussions of Japanese cultural history. But it's not the only authentic way to think about Japan's history, nor is it a genuine authentic past more so than anything else. This is just the part of that past that clicked for Hearn. I really love, again, you probably can tell, Roger Pulver's piece on Hearn, and I love one particular quote that really captured this idea. Quote, He created a Japan that was receding into the shadows, for he had always preferred shadows to light, and plunged into them, wallowing in the illusion that this alone was the real Japan. And that's where we get into Hearn's legacy, and this is where things get a little strange. As you can probably tell from those obituaries, when Hearn died, he was known in the West as an interpreter of Japan, but pretty unknown in Japan itself. After all, they didn't really need some white guy telling them what it meant to be Japanese. Very quickly, though, Hearn's reputation in the West went into freefall. By the time he died, Japan was already on the path to empire. The reference to Port Arthur in the Noguchi Yone letter may have clued you in, that the Russo-Japanese War had already begun at the time of Hearn's death. This was the beginning of a transformation of Japan's image in the West from a quaint land of samurai and geisha and cherry blossoms into a terrifying, martial, militarized state. In that context, Hearn started to be perceived in the West as an apologist for the Japanese Empire, or at the very least as extremely naive about his chosen country. His emphasis on charming stories of a bygone era suddenly seemed out of touch with a reality where Japan was becoming an imperial power. On the flip side, Hearn was an unknown in Japan during his lifetime, but became very popular after his death. Here was a man the popular discourse in Japan went, who really got Japan. To go back to the well of Pulver's, quote, It was then, as Hearn was being increasingly seen in the West as an apologist for the Oriental upstart, which he most definitely was not, that the Japanese adopted their not-so-native son as a spokesman. Here it was, written in English by a foreign man, proof that the Japanese soul was more profound, more subtle, and more potent in its pure spirituality than anything the materialistic West could possibly muster. They saw in him someone who had come to Japan without a hidden Western agenda, which was true. They also saw someone who loved Japan unequivocally, which definitely was not true. Hearn, in fact, despised the militarism he saw later in his life in Japan. He was not prepared to valorize Japan's wars abroad and hated that so much of what Japan had become was, quote, nothing but soldiers and the noise of bugles, unquote. This fact was conveniently overlooked by his wartime boosters in Tokyo and elsewhere. After the Second World War, Lafcadio Hearn enjoyed a second renaissance in Japan. This time, he was not a symbol of the purity of the Japanese soul, but of the aspects of Japanese culture untainted by militarism. In other words, Hearn was a window back to the parts of Japanese culture the Japanese could still feel good about the parts untainted by the sting of defeat. Indicative of this revival was the 1965 production of a film called Quaidon, based on four stories from Hearn's own book, made by the prolific director Kobayashi Masaki. 
It's really quite something, especially the visuals. But most importantly, the fact that it was really made at all tells you something about the enduring interest in Hearn and his view of Japan. Hearn has also enjoyed a revival of his reputation in the West as well. Today, for obvious reasons, the image of Japan as a domineering military power has somewhat faded from the popular consciousness. That leaves a lot more room for Hearn's vision of a quaint Japanese past rescued from the shadows. Today, he remains probably the best known of the early interpreters of Japan for the West, and his writing remains fascinating and, I think, pretty accessible. Of course, it's important to remember Hearn's agenda. His vision of Japan is one of trying to connect to this remote and unchanging past, visible in the shadow of modernity, and while, again, it's not invented from nothing, it's also important not to treat that view of Japan as essentially true. But even with that caveat, I think Hearn remains a really important figure, and not just because I have a lot of innate sympathy for people who try to make Japanese history and culture accessible for what I imagine are obvious reasons. He lived an interesting life. He did something meaningful with it. In the end, what's not to enjoy about that? That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to listeners Lachlan, Uri Maimon, and Natalie Mizaki for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for the 300th episode, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you for episode 299 next week for the story of the samurai rebellion that never was, the Kaon Uprising.